I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The opportunities that I have now and the career that I have now is a, is a testament to the people that I have met along the way and having those relationships. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Samantha Payne is a wine consultant, communicator and sommelier. She has paved an extensive career for herself in journalism. Today she is drinks writer for the for Gourmet Traveller and has her own video channel, How to Drink Wine with Samantha, on The Guardian. She is also one of the best value dining buddies, shop talkers and all round one of the great humans in this part of the world. What's up, Sam? Thanks for joining me. <laughs> That is quite an introduction. Thank you very much for the kind words. Well, they're all very heartfelt. How are you today? Most important question of the day, how is your ukulele coming along? (laughs) The ukulele's been a bit neglected um, for the past few months because ever since they opened the borders again, I have been traveling like the traveling sommelier that I am. I know you've seen that I did obviously Mexico, Croatia and London in the space of seven weeks and then I came home and then it was Adelaide and then came home and then it was Port Douglas and I'm off to Melbourne and Hobart this week. So the ukulele is currently sitting in the corner of my room looking at me forlornly being like, why haven't we played lately? Um, But I think maybe December, I'll get back to it. I feel like you're back to, you know, the sommelier, the, the, the wine person that you really are, because that has been your life for so long is traveling around and being at every event, you know, under the sun. And then it's taken a little bit of a turn for a while, but we need to go back further than that. So tell me all about where your fascination of wine began for you. Um, this is probably, so it's like every villain or hero needs an origin story and and I, I I quite like mine because it it always comes back to and it's everything I think it's the thing that's always progressed my career is just having faith and trust that if you work really hard and are a you know a kind person to others that the path forward will light its way for you. You'll, you'll, you'll get an idea of where it is that you're meant to go. So I didn't really come from a, a wine background or a wine drinking family. Most of my family aren't drinkers. We didn't really sort of grow up in that kind of culture. Um, you know, I don't have any sort of winemaking family legacies in the, in the background. So I had moved to Sydney when I was 18 and um, basically my first job down here um, while I was, you know, to pay my way through uni was to work at Vintage Cellars. Now, Vintage Cellars back in the day before it was owned by Coles um, used to be treated like each individual store was each like manager's own seller. So they used to stock the shelves with things that they would find that were interesting and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I had an incredible manager there when I was a casual who basically introduced me to the world of wine and how you take a grape and it becomes this whole part of people's dining experiences and there's so many things that we can sort of look at through the world of wine, agriculture, 
economics, you know, food, travel, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I kind of got to the end of my degree and had fallen in love with the wine industry. So I was doing a degree in English literature and art history because I wanted to be a museum curator and an art critic. And yeah, like I said, got to the end of the degree and was like, you know what? I really, I really want to explore this wine thing. I really want to write about wine. I really want to understand what it's all about um, so that, you know, I can one day talk about it. So yeah, that was kind of, that was kind of the origin. That was kind of the origin story. And, and sort of even going further back was how I got the job in the first place was literally mum and I walking through the local shopping centre um, and seeing a help wanted sign in the window and literally me turning to her and saying, that could be fun. Again, not coming from a, a wine drinking family at all and, and walked in and, and got a job the next week. So again, it, it's kind of all about just taking opportunities where they present themselves and just having a go. I feel like your degree would have so many similarities of how you approached uh, art and literature that you could translate into wine now with a creative mind. Is that something that you find useful in your day-to-day work now? Yeah, absolutely. I think the way that I look at wine and the way that I understand wine, it comes very much from that art history critical thinking background, which is you know, it's the way that I look at it is wine in the context of everything else around it. So as you know, as sommeliers, we look at wine in the context of the food around it and, and the dining experience. You know, when I write about wine, I think about wine in in the context of obviously where it was made and who was making it and what trends are we seeing, you know, domestically, globally, all of that kind of thing. Um, it, the wine in and of itself is not just the singular, it's part of a whole collective. So, yeah, definitely having that art history critique and critical thinking background definitely plays a huge part of how I look at wine and how I discuss wine, um, both on the page and in person. Tell me about your time as a sommelier on the floor. I mean, you, you like you said, you started out in vintage sellers and looked at that retail side what how did you come to the the decision to to want to be a sommelier and where did that begin that sort of then became part of again that sort of critical thinking and having a look at everything in context which was if vintage sellers was the starting point and one day wanting to communicate about wine being let's say the end point for me, it was about, okay, the next step is I want to understand how it all fits in together. I want to understand the whole value chain, the big picture, because I've always been of the firm belief that you can't write about something that you don't know about. So for me, becoming a sommelier seemed the next progression of that because at the time, you know, they had the best access to domestic and international wines there was obviously that food and wine element playing into that and also being that another aspect of that being in front of the consumers of wine the people that that drink it and and learning those kind of stories and seeing those trends and things like that so that was the next step for me i walked into your career um 
as a fully fledged psalm of the industry. And I'm going to share a totally embarrassing anecdote later about you and no, <laughs> about our, how we first met. But um, talk to me about young Samantha Payne stepping out onto a floor. Where was your first posting? How did you feel about it? What was that like? So, young baby Samelia Sam actually started her very first hospo job, which, which in a space of 18 months to two years became head Samelia of said hospo job, um, was actually as a barback um, at the soon-to-be-opened Manly Pavilion back in the day. Um, and this was obviously with Jonathan Barthamus heading the kitchen team, Michael Watt was heading, heading the food, the sorry, beverage side of things. Um, they had thrown money at the fit out. It was to be manly slash the Northern Beaches answer to icebergs or fine dining on that side of the bridge, which hadn't really been done before. Um, and... So having had no hospital experience whatsoever, um, went into being a barback to basically understand the beverage side of things and and slowly work my way up. Um, And also the thought at the time of carrying three plates terrified me. I actually remember the visceral feeling of of someone saying, well, you know, you can't be a sommelier if you you don't know how to carry three plates. I was like, no, not doing that. No, no, um, which looking back on it now is just absolutely hilarious to me. Um, but yeah, at the time I just thought that that was just a bridge too far. And I was like, you know what? I could do the cocktail thing. I could do the bar thing. I can still learn about wine on the side, um, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, you know, obviously then learned how to carry three plates and then went into the wine team and, um, yeah, in a very short space of time had, through certain, you know, opportunities and, and circumstances with what was going at the restaurant became sort of assistant sommelier and then and then head sommelier. So, um, yeah, that was a really sort of incredible first hospitality experience and I remember our beverage director telling me at the time, you'll never have it as good as you've got it right now, so soak it all up. And he was absolutely right. It's very much we talk about, you know, Bondi and, and Manly and the beaches suburbs of being their, their bubbles. We had a really strong core team that would hang out both at work and socially. And, you know, I think back on that time with such fond memories and, and again, just being absorbed in a completely different section of the wine industry and understanding its value and understanding its place. Um, as you will know, that was sort of, let's say, was that, you know, 20, that would have been early sort of 2000s, maybe mid 2000s, maybe sort of six, seven, eight. Wow. It seems like a whole another lifetime ago now talking about it, but that sort of, we were in the height of that era where, it was common practice for winemakers, you know, we were the – sommeliers were sort of the brunt of a lot of jokes. It, it was the easy, cheap shot to make fun of sommeliers and how we were wine wankers and all the rest of it. And it was something that I never truly quite understood because having – coming from that perspective of seeing the whole value chain and how important – each part of it 
was. That was, you know, on the side of, of being a baby sommelier, I was going and doing, you know, the rock star sommelier vintage, usually two of them every year, one in Australia and one in New Zealand, because I wanted to immerse myself more. I wanted to know more. I wanted to be the sponge and and just absorb as much as I could because through that absorption meant that I could understand how the puzzle looked and how we all work together and interrelate um, and how important each part, each link in that chain was. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was the first hospo job that then sort of led into a string of sort of head sommelier sort of roles. Interesting because I, I didn't see the Sydney scene until like 10 years later than that. Um, and, you, you know, you talked about how the impression of sommeliers, which has changed dramatically from being, you know, somebody that he said is known as a bit of a wine wanker. Well, in saying that, I think they still refer to us that way. <laughs> but um, to, you know, a lot of people... Just not to yeah, yeah. <laughs> To a lot of people wanting to, to, to be a sommelier now. But what was the culture around... Um, you going through that period, who else did you look to and who were the kind of people around you that helped you guide you on your way? Was there a lot of sommeliers? Was there a lot of female psalms that you learnt from? Um, who did you look to? I mean, obviously, as you know, sort of that, that era was sort of the height of, you know, Kim Bickley, Amanda Yallop, Sophie Otten um, being the core three sort of most well-known female sommeliers. It was more so at the tail end of it being a boys club but still a bit of a boys club you know i was coming coming up with people like our beloved friends you know pip anderson um gab webster um we sort of became quite a tight knit unit of talking about experiences and finding a way through that felt comfortable to each of our own individual stories um but again being being someone that sort of saw the whole value chain and and wanting to know all the different perspectives I was learning not just from fellow sommeliers but also you know other winemakers established and coming up other you know I was friends with a lot of reps like you know when AJ jumped off the floor and then started doing the distribution thing like understanding that part of it having never worked in it but but seeing that through his perspective and and those perspectives and how that worked so um again it was for me it was about being the sponge about absorbing it all and taking what was relevant and felt true inherently to me and and maybe discarding the rest to forge my own path, whatever that was going to look like at the time. Um, I wanted to share an anecdote with people listening, but also with you, because I was thinking back and thinking like, when was the first time I met Sam Payne? And I remember it being, finally I figured it out to um, a Psalms Australia event. And I remember walking into a room and, you know, being 
brand new at the time and, you know, kind of being totally freaked out to go to any event because I didn't know anyone. Um, and I remember you being there and you were speaking. Um, I think you were hosting one of the events. And my first impressions were, shit, this chick is super legit. Like, you knew everyone in the room. You spoke incredibly confidently. It was all high fives. There were so many in-jokes. I remember just thinking, man, this chick's got it made. I don't know who she is, but I definitely want to get to know her. Fast forward years later, and I'm very lucky to call you a close friend now. So on the outside, it looks like you have this red hot career. You've got endless opportunities knocking at your door. Tell me though, what has the path been like to get where you are today? There's there's an anecdote that I use because obviously now I'm having the extreme privilege of of mentoring up and coming sommeliers, consultant sommeliers, people that want to ask me advice because, like you said, apparently, apparently, allegedly, I've got it made. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people that are now navigating their way through this new world of wine and what that looks like, and there's sort of a an anecdote that I quite I use quite often because obviously the the conversation around pricing and charging and all of that kind of stuff comes up and and what I often say is you know you don't you don't pay me for the ability to be able to do the work in half an hour you pay me for the 10 almost 11 years of experience that I have that makes me capable to be able to do the work in half an hour. And that's very much sort of where I'm at now is, is looking back on now a, a decade and a bit of what this career in wine has looked like. And you very kindly summed it up with, with I think the greatest thing that has helped is getting to know a lot of people and being friendly and being genuinely interested in their stories and what makes them tick and understanding their experiences because on a slightly selfish way, there is always something to be learnt from that. Um, you know, you're just one person in an infinite world of people in this universe and, and you have your own story and you have your own legacy and you have your own limited knowledge through your experiences, why wouldn't you want to get to know more people and learn their experiences that aren't yours because there's something to be gleaned from that that might help make the road e easier to walk or something like that. Um, and just be genuinely – and being genuinely interested. Um, I think that was kind of the big thing. The opportunities that I have now and the career that I have now is a, is a testament to the people that I have met along the way and having those relationships. Um, but, yeah, I think, again I, – yeah, I think – you know, what does that, what does that look like? It's always just been saying yes to everything that I was interested in, even if I didn't know where it was going to lead or what it was going to look like on the other side. 
um, you know, like I said, once after the Manly Pavilion, it was a string of sort of head sommelier roles until we sort of hit 2013 when 414 was my last real full-time head sommelier role. And it was the strangest, it was the strangest sort of set of circumstances that, that caused me to then go into sommelier consulting or wine consulting and start that next phase of my career. And it was just something simple of the fact that they started opening for breakfast and they wanted me to do breakfast shifts. And I remember thinking, I'm pretty sure I became a sommelier so I didn't have to get up at, you know, seven, six o'clock in the morning. And that then led to the train of thought of, well, why am I working 60 to 80 hour weeks for somebody else and somebody else's brand that's always going to be at the forefront of everything when I could easily be working 60 to 80 hours for myself and build my own brand and build my own legacy way forward, whatever whatever you want to call it, um, and sort of just trusting that I knew enough people and enough people knew me and I had enough experience that I could shape that next phase of my destiny. You have really carved out a spot of authority on, on Australian wine scene. Um, and I think about your time at, at Nomad and, and also your writing of many wine lists across the country, writing all Australian wine lists, that kind of uh, voice in Australian wine, did that come about naturally? Is that, did you see a niche that wasn't being fulfilled? Yeah, a bit, bit of both actually. So, yes, it came naturally because simply through doing, you know, vintages in Australia and and being here in this country, having access, you know, almost 24-7 to a whole host of Australian wine personalities and people. Um, I think sort of as sommeliers, as, and you may or may not agree with this, we tend to think – globally and we tend to think that I need to know everything about everywhere and certainly if you think about the MS set of education and programs it's very geared towards knowing everything about everywhere Um, and just the way that my brain works was just like I would rather immerse myself in one thing and know that really well and be comfortable with talking about it anytime, anywhere, in any scenario than knowing a lot of things about a lot of places but never really immersing myself in it. And then the other flip side of that is is again comes back to understanding and honouring that value chain of, well, why wouldn't I celebrate the wines that we are making here and the innovation that we have here and these people that I've come to love and respect, why wouldn't I be championing, championing and celebrating what they're doing in the same way that they champion me? So that was kind of that was how that sort of that was the I guess the the kickoff of of that. You you've. Featured in Concrete Playground, Broadsheet, Decanter the UK, quite a few different publications. And then you've also had your own business where you make um, wine-inspired candles. When I think about you, I think about so many um, levels of 
uh, experience in different things. I think you know how to run a business because you've run your own business. You know how to keep your own voice, but be able to write um, for different publications over the world as well. You know, how do you manage to keep yourself so motivated? Like you said, you say yes to a lot of things and sometimes I'm sure you think I've got too much on, but how do you keep yourself hungry and motivated when you could just go back to bed because you don't have to turn off up at the office? (laughs) (laughs) that is the 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 definite struggle that any self-employed person will will tell you um deadlines deadlines help having external dates by which work needs to be delivered by definitely helps that doesn't mean that stuff doesn't get done till the last minute but but having set set dates by which things need to be done i'm not so good when I have editors who are like, yeah, whenever you want to file, that copy is fine. Like, that's all good. And I'm like, no, no, I need I need firm boundaries because you won't get it for 12 months if that's the case. There's other things that will then scooch up on the priority line. Um, that definitely helps. It's, it's going to sound so corny and cliched, but just really being invested in and loving what you do. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean that, you know, you wish you could turn your brain off or just not work or or any of those things, but definitely loving what it is that that you do and that you've tied your life to makes a huge difference to being able to stay motivated to still do it because it has taken over my whole life. It has taken over my social life. It's taken over my days. I pretty much work six days a week. And I made the joke with many people that if I'm awake, I'm working because there's always something ticking in the background of my brain, whether that's a new idea for a candle or something that's inspired me or an idea for an article, or I've just gotten off the phone with a winemaker talking about their new releases and that's led me to think about some other things about, you know, trends and, and or whatever it might look like. Um, and I don't think, and again, it's, it's a very personal thing. There are people who see work as work and they can shut it off at the end of the day and it's, and it's a, it's a paycheck and they use that to fund everything else that, that they're excited about, their hobbies, their interests and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's just the way that I'm wired is that I couldn't be happy if I didn't do something that I loved. You know, that's, it's a very, you know, it's a very Capricorn trait. It's, it, it is literally hardwired into my being. Um, what works for me doesn't work for other people and, and, and that's fine. <laughs> most important is that you understand what works for you and I think you've got that nailed so that's important run me through um, your recent trip to Mexico which was a joy and a hell of a torture to endure and watch I have to say (laughs) Um, but talk me through kind of a trip like that how do you go from getting content drinking tequila and then writing a feature article um 
the Mexico trip was was really exciting for me on many levels. One, because it was a non-wine trip. Not to say that I didn't try some Mexican wine, which was surprisingly delicious. Got to say, Mexican sparkling wine, not bad. Um, but that trip was was yeah really exciting for me on, on, on many levels. One, because I've always had a strong affinity for tequila and mezcal and agave-based spirits. Um, I've always really, really enjoyed them. And it's always been a dream of mine to be able to go over to Guadalajara, Jalisco, and find out how they're made. So this was a kind of a dream come true for me. Um, The opportunity comes through a particular brand, you know, in our case, sometimes a lot of times wineries um, or a region. So for this, it was in collaboration with Tequila Tromba. Um, What's really exciting is that they're doing a, basically funding off their own back, a what's called the Sustainable Agave Project. So um, there are native strains and native varietals of agave that are being sort of wiped out and decimated through the production of, of blue agave, um, which isn't really native to the region. So um, they're working really hard to sort of propagate and bring up these traditional agave clones. So that was kind of the one of the main key points of, of going over there was to see this and sus- to see what sustainable agave production looks like or could look like um, to understand, again, that value chain of how it works in a sort of tequila standpoint. Um, And then obviously the food, drink, cultural aspects of it all. Um, It was a a whirlwind trip. Uh, Basically flew in and did a day and a night in in LA and then five days in in Guadalajara. Uh, So it was pretty – it was pretty jam – packed and anyone and anyone who's heard me talk about it um a post of that is has sort of heard me talk about it with such like reverence and awe and excitement and just even the 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 sheer exhaustion of fitting so much into into five days but that's what it's like when you're on these trips junkets whatever you want to call them is is this just, again, me being a sponge and absorbing it all and then coming home and the process of what was I inspired by? What did I what did I really like the taste of? What do I think people would be interested to learn? What are misconceptions or misunderstandings that people might have about agave production, tequila, tequila brands, things like that? And then obviously pitching that out to um, – for example, with, with Gourmet Traveller in the November issue, there will be a five-page explainer on tequila. The Guardian, you know, will do a more piece about the angle about sustainability and sustainability in drinks as part of a larger focus. You know, Broadsheet might want, you know, a sommelier's guide to, to Jalisco or Guadalajara. There is so much content that can be mined from that in diff, from different angles. And I think a good communicator, a good writer looks at all those different angles and looks about what would be interesting for people to know. Um, You would know this obviously with the Somalia thing. We educate people, but we educate people in very subtle 
ways. You know, we read the room, we read people. What is it that they would be interested in and then sell that story? And I think what what you're so good at as well is kind of going, okay, what does what are the broadsheet drinkers and readers like and what, you know, how would I tailor what um, I could use from this trip but for that particular reader as opposed to, what's the gourmet traveler audience and and what and who is going to be reading that and um giving you know a really different take by like you said reading the room or reading your reader or whoever picks up that kind of magazine or or website or whoever it may be so thinking like you said uh, cohesively and about the whole picture rather than just not necessarily what you want to say about it I think you do that really really very well and I think it's incredibly important um I wanted to ask what keeps you engaged in the drink scene and what do you love most about your job what keeps me engaged in the drinks scene uh it's ever evolving it's you know we take we we talk about this all the time about how trends are cyclical and how you take something like Chardonnay, for instance, in Australia, and we look at it from the 80s and it was big and buttery and all of that kind of styles. The pendulum swings to the other end in the early aughts to unwooded styles, to the point where it said unwooded Chardonnay on the label. We are now sitting in, I guess, the the prime of Chardonnay's life with the most exciting Chardonnays that we've seen coming out of Australia, bar none. That to me is really exciting. That evolution, um, that's what keeps me engaged. It's like it's it's looking back on where we've come from, what are the lessons that we've learnt or in some cases haven't learnt, what does that mean for the future that we ideally want to build together, which I know sounds very like, oh, utopia kind of thing, but there are good, honest people out there in the world who are doing really incredible things and those are the stories that I want to tell and be a part of and hopefully help progress in the future um what I love yeah that is that is indeed what I love most about the job it really comes back to the people for me and it's what's it's what it's always been about is as as introverted and as someone who loves alone time as much as I do the double-edged sword of that is that it's the people that keep me going and keep me engaged and that I'm really excited to meet and interact with. It's I completely agree with you. There's so many great people and interesting people and and it keeps changing. So there's, you know, more colours and tones, you know, every day. And you'd, and you'd see that through this podcast, all the people that you get to meet and chat to and hear about their stories. Like, you're doing a really amazing thing getting this out into the world. <laughs> Thank you. That definitely was the whole point of it. It was listening less to myself and listening more to others and, you know, we get to see we're very lucky in our lives because we get to meet lots of amazing people, but the stories need to be told and... It's definitely one way to do it. So, Sam, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? And what would you be listening to in terms of music when you're drinking them? I'm <laughs> going to throw one in there. 
but you got this. You got this. <laughs> you turned. You turned. You turned. The music went in there. If I could only drink three beverages for the rest of my life in life. Okay, so typical sommelier answer. And I know we were joking about this on Instagram the other day that liking Riesling is not a personality trait, <laughs> but I'm going to have to throw Riesling in there in all its wonderful, delightful facets. Um, I'm going to have to say champagne slash sparkling wine because when you have a name, champagne, that rhymes <laughs> to champagne, for the champagne, 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 <laughs> you can't not have bubbles in there. Again, broad strokes of style, so I think I'll always be covered. Um, and then my very uncool, um, I suppose, cocktail of choice, which is an Aperol Sour, mm. which Pip to this day still teases me <laughs> about, but it is without a doubt an all-rounder, just delicious drink. It's not too much acid. It's got, a, you know, the right amount of sort of bitterness in there. It is, it is without a doubt my go-to. Um, and what am I? And what am I listening to? Oh. <laughs> For everybody else that doesn't know, Sam has an incredible set of playlists, and uh, music is a huge part of her life. So if you're ever at a, you know, at a, at a your wits end and need a great playlist, Sam is the person to go to. And she'll have yeah, I do often. I do often share a few playlists uh, on on my Instagram, and I have been known to to. Spotify DJ a few peanut paloozas over the years with with variously unappropriately titled Pinot playlists. Um, what am I going to be listening to? I suppose Riesling is something that you could kind of Riesling something that could you know like you can drink Riesling at breakfast you can drink it at the end of a dinner you could drink it any time of day so it's got to be music I imagine that could kind of fit. Yeah. Okay, my, you know what? It's it's. I'm gonna have to come back to something that that has been a, a a steadfast classic throughout my whole life from my teenage years to now. It's going to have to be something like Jimmy Eat World. Um, my inner my inner emo uh, will not be silenced. Um, and and there's a whole you know twenty year catalogue of music that I can always come back to and and I actually was in McLaren Vale a couple of months ago in a winery tasting things out of barrels and Jimmy Eat World just happened to be playing on in the background and I was like you know what it really doesn't get much better than this so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick I'm gonna stick with that a little bit of sweetness I love it I love it exactly and champagne what are we drinking with champagne what are we (laughs) listening to what are we drinking what are we drinking with champagne I mean again it's 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 going to have to be something like champagne and hip hop. You know, you've got to give it to Julian Vinicotta at Butter. He's really, he's really marketed that well with the whole champagne, hip hop and fried chicken joint that is Butter because it's just a really great combination. Um, champagne obviously gets, gets thrown out a lot during the, uh, the Christmas period and, you know, Nelly's hot in here is on high rotation when I'm, making making the family's you know potato salad and with a glass of bubbles in hand so um yeah i'm gonna have to say hip-hop you know i've got yeah there's a there's a really good again spotify playlist hip-hop hooray that i've been slowly cataloging of just all my favorite hip-hop songs over the decades so uh that's always on high rotation that time of year 
perfect. And what's your Aperol Sour? Which I, you know, I'm I'm with you on that. For me, it reminds me of drinking like an orange, like if I was a kid, an orange sherbet. If you could turn that into a cocktail, you know, it's so damn delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's um, like, look, don't get me wrong, margarita girl through and through, especially Tommy's margarita. But at some point in our, you know, mid thirties that we're at now, that uh, the uh, acid tends to to get a little stuck in the craw after after a few. So, but with the with the apple sour with the egg whites and everything, it's just a lot softer on the uh, on the old uh, diaphragm these days. So. Um, Afro Sour music. It's going to have to be something like, because again, Afro Sours, I tend to drink them a lot when I meet Hubert's. So, um, you know, you're thinking like jazz, you're thinking a bit of bonobo, bit of subtract, something that's just a bit more chill. Not so emo like Jimmy Eat World, not as obviously hectic as hip hop. It's, it's, it's soft and delightful, much like an Afro Sour. So it's going to have to be like bonobo, subtract, all that kind of music. I love it. I love it. I knew you'd uh, nail those. Thank you. <laughs> Giving me so many ideas for when I'm back on the on the drinking scene. Back on the booze. <laughs> and it can't come soon enough, I tell you. Sam, it's been a bloody <laughs> pleasure as always. Thank you, mate, so much for popping on the podcast. I miss you. I can't wait to see you. And Oh, I miss you too. Um, I'm really honoured that you asked me to be a guest at them very touched so thank you very much i was just waiting till i got good enough to interview you and i didn't uh, mess it up so (laughs) (laughs) thank you again and cheers to you mate i'll chat to you soon thanks mate this is over a glass i'm shante whale stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks listen in every thursday on your podcast app follow us on instagram at over a glass pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.